Hello and welcome to a new English edition of my podcast Helium Talk, das Kunstgespräch. My name is Jörg Heikhaus and my guest today is, yes, once again, Jonathan Levine from the Jonathan Levine Projects in New Jersey. Here we go. This is show number nine of my special series with Jonathan that we call Off the Record because that is just what it is. Are we on the record or off the record? This is, this is off the record. This is all off the record. It has only been two weeks since our last show, but you may remember we had some technical issues and were cut off before we got to the more constructive part. And that is what we are focusing on today. Also, the show is now split into two parts. First, we talk about ideas for alternative business models or the relationship between artists and galleries in difficult market conditions as we are experiencing them in recent years. We are touching on a very delicate issue and we do ask you again for your input and ideas for our next talk. Then we move on to a more lighter topic and start telling anecdotes from our long time in the business. We speak about our early Miami experiences and good times with Friends With You and David Show. We tell stories about artists we worked or still work with, such as Doze Green, Boris Hoppik, or our Brazilian connections, such as Speto and Cezao, and more. We are both looking forward to expanding the storytelling. It also helps you get a more positive picture of us, maybe, in case you get tired listening to our struggles and the frustration with the shitty art business today, which we may have placed too much emphasis on lately, but we still haven't found satisfying answers yet, so please bear with us. However, if you are still interested in our professional and definitely educated opinion on this, please listen to the first roundabout 30 minutes of today's Helium Talk and see if you'd like to engage with us more. For example, by sending an email to hello at heliumtalk.com or a message on my Instagram at heliumcowboy to include your thoughts in our discussion. In other news, work on my book progresses. I am sitting on chapter 3 already, round about 50 pages into the autobiographical story of Alex Diamond. I am covering the year 2009 right now and a lot happened then, including a bunch of great shows. Us moving to a new location, the peak of the financial crisis with many galleries dying and plenty of artists' dreams being shattered and the release of my very first Alex Diamond book, which was called Don't Worry About a Thing. This one I'm writing now is not a book about Helium Cowboy, but of course there's a lot of Helium Cowboy in there. The two are simply impossible to separate. Tons of content. I'm curious how you will all like it in the end. Release date is not set yet, but this task simply cannot be rushed. Talking about rushing, I see a drop in listeners at the end of the podcast, right when we say our goodbyes. But hey, sometimes a bit more patience might be good, because from time to time I end with something special for you. But for now, please enjoy episode number 66 of my Helium Talk podcast with Jonathan Levine. Helium Talk. Yeah, so shall we get straight into what our plans are for today? Sure, sure. So, so last time we were cut short in our elaborations on artists and gallery relationships uh, due to technical reasons. That's correct. Um, but we had, <laughs> <laughs> but, 
But we had some really good thoughts, you know, which weren't recorded. Well, your end was recorded, mine wasn't. So, but yeah. still. I should so, mention that um, I sounded ex exceptionally angry the way you, uh, <laughs> the way that ended, that ended it, which is pretty funny because I get very passionate and I would have come back down. Yeah. So I just want to put that out there, you know, but I guess that makes it a little bit more edgy. So, yeah, I can, I can, I can give you some feedback that I've gotten because we, I, we, we thought that it would be a good idea to ask people to submit questions or thoughts on what we want to discuss today, um, the uh, artist gallery relationship. And, um, I, I got some, but only on a personal level. So not an email or on Instagram on Instagram. When I asked that question in the story, uh, what do you think? You know, let us know your thoughts on this. I got a lot of responses. And they were all emoticons. Like there was a horse, there was a smiley face, there was a thumbs up, but there was no constructive feedback. I, I was talking to to some some friends of mine about this, why this might not happen. And they said, well, one of the reasons might be it's something that people don't want to be too public about. Nevertheless, I think we can start the discussion on our own and maybe this is what has to happen first and then we might get constructive feedback. Sure. So, I mean, it occurs to me that um, even when I've worked with artists for a very long time and I've explained to them, you know, kind of what my needs are, what my situation is, it seems like no matter how much you discuss it with them, they just kind of don't get it. Now, I don't know if that's what, what that is, um, but... I mean, most people aren't making a living as an artist, so they don't really understand the financials. And once you really sit down and really understand what they are, you, you know, it's a little disheartening probably in some capacity. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of people go like, oh, uh, I want to just make my art and I don't need to make a lot of money and blah, blah, blah. But I mean, there's just life realities that come in. I mean, I've seen so many artists... When they were younger, they were happy making a little bit of money. But then as they get older, they got married, they had kids, they needed to make more and more money. And it doesn't it doesn't usually pan out that way, unfortunately. So Okay, but but that's there's there's one thing that what we're talking about in this podcast a lot and we're trying to figure out is the change um of, of of the whole gallery system and and it's not just about mid-level galleries which is of course what we can talk about most um but but there there are things that are changing on a on a very large scale that a lot of people don't see or understand because um what, the perception that most people have is when they look at art and galleries it was what they read in in newspapers or in so they always just grace the the bigger galleries or like galleries like yours and mine who've been in business for a long time who have a uh, have a, have a followership and know people. But there's of course a very huge, broad, you know, sort of palette of galleries that I don't know. We you don't necessarily have contact with who also have to have to survive. I just read a very interesting article about these top level galleries that basically do whatever they want, so that they have they have no real relation to the markets that we're coping with and that's a really interesting article about why artists change galleries is basically the main topic so you know many artists these days change galleries gallery representations from the big galleries and and you know that uh, you know Hauser and Wirt is Hauser and Wirt is one of the largest galleries in the world and 
they recently announced that they have uh, signed three new heavyweight artists uh, to their roster of artists, which means they have now 91 artists that are representing. And this article also says um, that uh, that the uh, the uh, the gallery, of course, has enough money to hire uh, uh, relationship managers for these artists and gallerists, and you know, sort of for each individual artist. But there was a very interesting comment on that by um, a New York Times art critic, Roberta Smith. She said, what is an art gallery with enough cash and perks to sign every artist it wants and to hire all the handlers and staff required? It's a talent agency, not an art gallery. And I think this, these are some things. What we're also discussing is the format of gallery is changing. Yes, a big gallery like House and Brit, yeah, there are artist representation in a way but but uh, but but as most say it's a, it's a talent agency they try to buy the biggest and strongest and in probably most so, uh, potentially most successful artists to make a lot of money um with these artists together but it's like still house and vert is one of the top galleries and they have 90 artists sounds a lot it is a lot to be represented by one gallery yeah so you, what you have to think about though you have to put this in perspective because when people mm. when we use this word gallery i think probably most people just think of this like all galleries are the same and they're just not even, and that's one of the conversations about we can, one of the issues I think in terms of, um, you know, artist splits and all that because of cost, but you know, how's it worth, how many locations do they have yeah. and how big are these locations? And so, and also people need to realize like the amount of galleries that are blue chip galleries that are like these super high end galleries that sort of run the art world are like 1% probably mm -hmm. of the galleries out there. So, you know, there's a lack of, a lack of real understanding about the business and the business structure. And it's also not discussed openly in the art world because nobody, it's, that's kind of how like people, they want it to be mis the mystique of it. Because, I mean, it's a crazy business that, Suddenly somebody making the, you know, you can have, this is what everybody looks at. And this is what everyone aspires to. You have somebody who's painting in their house and suddenly their paintings are worth a million dollars. Like how the hell does that happen? You know? And you're like, what's the difference between this artist and that artist? There's not a big difference yet. This person's making $5,000 a painting. This one's making a million dollars a painting. Mm -hmm. So, and that is like, if you end up being one of those artists and we always go back to like say cause or John Curran or, uh, Damien Hertz. Did I say his name right? Hurst, yeah. Her, her, wait. Hertz, Damien Hertz. <laughs> yeah. Okay, it was. It, um, Hurst. Is it Hurst? Hurst? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Uh, I, think it's hard to pronounce. I can't even say. Or, you know, Hurt is also good, I think. Or Coons or whoever, you yeah. know, like, I think that the, the chances of like being one of those artists, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of other things. It's not just luck. Um, there's a total biz, business act business acumen. I can't speak this morning. Business acumen you have to have and a certain mentality you have to have and a certain personality you have to have. Um, but it's kind of like winning the lottery five times. Mm -hmm. That is the, the, the mm -hmm. so like if you five times in a row. Yes. I mean, it's the chances are, but yet that's what people sort of strive for. And that's what when you go to art school and they talk to mm -hmm. you about that and blah, blah, blah. And that's not really realistic. Like no. That's not what people should be looking at but it's such a niche market that there's not a lot of information never it's never put in perspective for people mm -hmm. so 
you know, and it's not like you and I knew going in anything either. We were just as blind as anybody else. We just learned by cutting our teeth, by, by doing it and understanding it. So, um, you know, I think one of the things that you and I discussed was like, well, should there be a difference in sort of, you know, the splits or like how people get paid or. Yeah. I think when, when, the, when, you know, so it's, it's the basis of the, 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 the gallery model that people understand as the gallery model that we've been discussing before as well, where it changes, you said something really nice the last time you know, a lot of artists are not looking for a gallery. They're looking for exhibition, but, um, but based on that, which is also true um, because you see all these galleries jumping from one gallery to another, let's get back, get away from the blue chips and the 1% because that's unrealistic for, you know, almost everyone. Um, but the era that we're in has, has, has changed a lot. And we've been talking a lot about that, that it's, um, that running a gallery is not profitable anymore. And if it's not profitable, there's no use in making it. And profit does not mean you buy a jet and a lot or a large car, but it's to be able to make the business and continue to make the business. That's the business that we're in. Right. You know, I think we're both known for, <clears throat> not having a yacht, you know, in a harbor or so somewhere or a Learjet. But, um, but it's, uh, and, and with this, you know, sort of, we had these, the, the, the thoughts of, you know, sort of, if this should still be a model that's interesting to do, because I mean, we both w withdrew from that classical model and we're not doing it anymore because we don't think it makes a lot of sense. I still do sometimes exhibitions and you do that too with you know, sort of different results. Very um, different results and very select artists. Yeah. Um, by the way, I should mention, yeah. I, I, I'm on my second new car. It's yeah. a Hyundai Elantra. All right. That's what I drive. I drive a car that all American artists probably know. American people know that pretty well because it's basically driving around everywhere. And, and it also is a good chance for me to do a second business, man with a van. I have an Astro van. Astro Safari van, Chevrolet, um, which is 26 years old. And um, and I bought it 10 years ago for 3,000 euros. So, doesn't it sound so, so yeah, we're, we're making so much money. Uh, Glamorous. Yeah, it's so good. It's, <laughs> yeah. I'm, as a matter of fact, today I am going to drop a painting off in New York City. And I'm wow. driving again myself in my Hyundai Elantra, yeah. which has got some dents and things on it because it's a city car, so it just gets... Sure. It gets hit yeah. here and there. So, um, I think a car should be allowed to look rugged. Rugged. Oh, I mean, I don't, I don't care. Yeah, rugged. I just think that people, there's an expectation, like every once mm -hmm. in a while, like I would drive artists in my car, or clients, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, like, this is what you drive. And I'm like, yeah, this, this is what <laughs> I drive. You know, yeah. it's like not sexy. Um, all right. So, but one of the, sorry, but, but yeah. <laughs> But one, one of the things what you just started saying is that we thought maybe one thing that could change, which could make it interesting and more attractive to people to do exhibition. But I mean, just the bottom line is if you, you know, who's done like two decades of exhibitions with great artists and artists that are by now world known and the same I did, probably not, you know, sort of, uh, I, didn't, I didn't have a Shepard Ferry running through my gallery, coming through my gallery, but they were like Boris Hopek and Eastern Control Center and, and artists that are big and still big today and well known today and had it. And, and had careers and, and I'm, I'm current just to step outside a little bit. I'm currently writing this book, this autobiography about Alex Diamond about the last 20 years. And I, and I tell this in a chronological order and I look at what 
Helium Cowboy has done in some years, which means my work, you know, it's like, I don't know, 10 shows, three art fairs in New York, in Miami, in Basel, in uh, special shows, renting places, making pop-up before people even knew what pop-up was, producing books right. with artists, prints, all these things, running around, making television, all these things. So I think if <laughs> people like you and me who've done so much decide to not do it anymore, there it's not just the reason that we're getting older and we're too tired to do this is also because it's not really attractive and how could this become not just for us but also for a younger generation that just doesn't want to party but also wants to make money with it and maybe buy something more than a hyundai or toyota corolla at some point <laughs> um uh, and make a sustainable business for many years what could change and one of the things that we thought could could be an idea to toss around and play around with is this traditional 50 50 split between gallery and artist now, yeah, I want to, yeah, this traditional, yeah. So, is that, is that a model that can still work today? Uh, I don't think so because the one thing that I look at, I always said this is like, and I refuse to participate in this anymore in this capacity is um, I would have my gallery in New York mm -hmm. and my gallery would be, the rent would be more, I'd have more employees, I'd do more for the artist, or I try to do more for the artist as much as I could. And then there would be a, another gallery that shared that artist with me in LA mm -hmm. and that art, that gallery would cost less. They'd have less employees. They would, their overhead as a whole would be a lot less, but they would get the same amount of shows and the same amount of work. Mm -hmm. So I would be making a lot less money and putting a lot more money out now. And, and most of the artists that I work with that I used to work with, you know, and I'm still have some relationship with, they're not really depends on their personality. A lot of people are managing themselves and they really don't all the years I was running my gallery in New York, even before this whole market change, people did not want to be limited by exclusivity. It was very hard for me to get people locked down. Mm -hmm. And then the flip side of it is, is I wasn't, I was also a little nervous about it because when you have exclusivity and you have really successful artists, which I had a lot of, I was really fortunate um, they expect a lot from you and there's only so much you can do with X amount of resources, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you can't, you could put millions of dollars into an artist and there's, that doesn't mean they're going to be successful. There's no guarantee. So, um, you know, in the music industry, it's funny, you know, like I could spend and I just throw some of these numbers out and may blow people's minds. But, you know, at one point my overhead was a hundred grand a month. Mm -hmm. So I had to generate $200,000 a month mm -hmm. and to break even. Right. And people were like, what's all that expense? Well, a big chunk of it was I was running two spaces and this was in New York city. So a big chunk of it was rent. Another big chunk of it was labor. So labor mm -hmm. costs more, way more than rent. And there's a whole bunch sure. of other things that people don't think about. There's so many expenses. And, um, so where was I going with this? Sorry. I got a, I don't know. We actually wanted to talk about whether the 50-50 split. Oh, so I know what you're going to say. So I'm sorry. Thanks for getting me back there. Um, so I just remember thinking like I would, I had friends who were in like labels and I think about the music industry, they would be like on sub pop and they would get signed to like these exclusive contracts and sub pop. And it'd be like, they get 50 grand and to put out the, the, the record to record it and maybe some tour support. And mm -hmm. you know, the label owned the rights to that. And, 
you know, they got a small percentage of this, that, and the other thing. And so like, or, or a lot of other deals where people, artists are getting like, um, they're doing licensing deals. They're getting more really small percentages, you know? And so I'm putting out this huge output, but you know, what do I, what I got back or what a gallery will get back in the same situation that I am is to get 50% of sales only mm -hmm. if you sell work. So and the less and less it was exclusive and you weren't getting any show work outside of those shows, um, the harder it was to make money. So like if you think about it, everyone's like, oh, that split is a lot of people complain about the 50-50 split. But you have to put it in context of the cost that it is to have your show. Mm -hmm. And so I always kind of thought, well, why isn't this more like a label, a record label? And how do you show people like, you know, maybe they're. The, 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 the conversation you and I were having is coming up with solutions. I don't really know if there are any, but when I talk to artists these days about doing shows, I talk to them about my expenses and what it's going to cost. And, you know, I can just kind of, that way they can sort of like start to think about it and, you mm -hmm. know, decide maybe even in their own, come up with a solution because each artist is going to want something different. Like, so but I think, but I think, is, I mean, it's, I think it's pretty straightforward. If you, if you have a, if you, have, I mean, just put some figures to it. If you do an exhibition, like do an exhibition with an artist, just an average show, and you say, okay, this is my rent, this is uh, labor, my staff, this is uh, the PR that we're putting in there, like uh, the additional costs, like printing and stuff like that. Right. Um, and uh, then you come up with a figure, say it's like twenty thousand euros. Or twenty thousand dollars that a show costs, you know, just to put a put a put a yeah, down. okay, sure, sure. So it's probably higher in New York. It's probably less in Hamburg. But I mean, if I do a solo exhibition with an artist, I think there's at least, I mean, there's an average of I don't know somewhere between eight and fourteen thousand, fifteen thousand euros that you have to invest into an artist to make a good show, to right. a real proper solid show, and probably that's three times as much in New York, probably. Um, but still, so you have a figure like 10,000 euros is the, what the exhibition costs. So we sell an artwork for, we, we have a great show. People come around. It's fun. It's nice. Everybody enjoys it. We may get a press article out of it. Uh, we get some today, some, some, I don't know, some Instagram followership out of it. Uh, the artist, you know, sort of has the opportunity to, to ex show his work in a, in a very good environment and a very good platform. And maybe, you know, sort of continue from there. Um, and we sell one piece of work that is 2000 euros. So I made 1000 euros, uh, and the artist made 1000 euros. I have a loss of 9000 euros and the artist has, uh, 1000 euros still. I mean, of course he can now say, okay, but painting my work, all these things that cost some time, but building a gallery also costs time. But it, bottom line is the artist keeps the other paintings that's right and still has, he still has he or she still has the that's right the the, the volume of the that's show. right that's right you know so there is that and so the gallery they, they have nothing and nothing you know they have to you after the people don't realize and you know you and i assume that people realize this typically depending on the gallery on my gallery the deal was you did a show and i was paying for the right to keep that work for six months yeah. Um, you don't know if you got good work. You don't know if you're going to get work. That's you just don't know. There's just a hugely, but at the end of the six months, the mm -hmm. artist gets their work back. Mm -hmm. Your output, you can't get back. So, you know, typically with uh, 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 any other kind of business model, when 
a business like invests in like an artist and say music, for example, or, you know, or if we even just put out a print, there's a, mm-hmm. it's like before anyone starts making any money, the overhead's got to be covered. But for mm-hmm. whatever reason in our business, it's not that way. And yeah. that's not a sustainable business model. So, so, but of course, the, you know, one idea would then, of course, to say, once we have the, the 10,000 uh, um, euros in for the show, mm-hmm. we both start making money. And then, of course, we don't, I mean, that's my opinion. We don't necessarily have to change 50, uh, 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 split 50-50. The artist could have more, you know, that because he's, he's, he or she is the originator of the work. That would be fine for me because it would already change a lot in regards to what a successful show is um and uh and and you know sort of and that is something that i that i'd really i mean it would be great if we had like two or three artists sitting here would you know sort of that's actually i think a, a pretty good solution i actually didn't thought about that that's actually a pretty good solution um but of course i think that when you have younger artists that don't have strong markets mm. they i could i already i could foresee all the issues um sure they're open to that but as things change they change and i have other artists come in they're like i'm not doing that like they don't really respect mm-hmm. that your business what you have is different than other places they show mm-hmm. and you know and also i think people that aren't very a lot of, a lot of artists aren't and a lot of people as a whole just don't understand business not that it's difficult to understand they just too complicated for them or something yeah, well, yeah can only make it around a model like this when you work with, uh, so with a, a very in a very transparent way so you like to have to put uh, basically you basically have to find a model where you put the bills on the table and explain the artist this is what it's going to cost and you have to show the artist prove we have also have to do i mean the gallery has to do a little bit more work in that respect as well because they have to you know show for these things you know what but, i i love but, this idea i just yeah. think it would be i love this idea but you'd have to find the right artist to really trust yeah. you because i could tell you up and down is you probably know too sure you know it's you you actually then will end up making you would make a lot of extra work having to kind of prove mm-hmm. the, the what you're doing i guess in a way mm-hmm. um which is kind of tough as well it's like well why are you spending this much on this and why are you spending that much on that and mm-hmm. it's like well this is what it costs to run an ad this is what it, it took 40 hours to do this. And I had to play this employee for 40 hours. You know, well, you can also, I mean, you can make it of course a lot simpler and straightforward because this way, it, you know, so the artist becomes a shareholder in the show in a way. And, you know, sort of you can, you can with your visit, you cannot be, I don't know. It's, it's, I think it's a little bit difficult to be super transparent, but you could work with say, okay, you agree on something before this is the budget for the show. And this is what we're going to do. This is the result that we're having. Like, you know, so we're going to put 100 euros into Facebook ads or whatever, and something there that you can plan, you can make a budget plan for that. Um, so that there is an average and you can of course still take some of the risk on the shoulders of the gallery that is of that are probably more difficult to prove, but a lot of these things are pretty simple and easy to prove. But I think, uh, the, 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 that this is something that could make it more attractive. I mean, I'm not saying this is the ultimate solution for, for, for things, but just moving this whole, you know, sort of, because it's, I mean, we talked about this, it's not, a, it's not a business model. Um, sharing 50, 50, that might work for, and I and I and I know I know you know sort of one or the other of the bigger galleries, not necessarily directly at Blue Chip, but probably you know sort of on their way to or having worked at Blue Chip galleries, it's 
I have artists coming to the gallery and you for sure as well that say, this is how it's done 50-50. The other galleries do it like that. And I know that big galleries don't do it. No way they don't. They, they, of course, they can be more generous with cash because they have more cash. And of course, if it's a Jeff Koons show, the sky is the limit because they will make their millions with the yeah, show. Yeah, I mean, they no really... They but really, the younger artists that they're starting to present and represent, I know that it's not always that they get half of the sales. You know, the, the gallery deducts a lot of production costs for exhibition. But the large galleries have production costs for exhibition that goes into 30, 40, 50, 100,000 sometimes. Oh, more than um, that. Yeah, more, more than, than that. that. Way and, more than that. And that's not, that's not, a, that's not money that they're just going to, I mean, you know, sort of they invest part of it, but they also get it back, you know, because they have to stay profitable. Otherwise... You know, the four stories in Chelsea will not, you know, sort of, uh, the rent will not yeah. be able to pay. I mean, it's pretty common common knowledge that, like, no. when you have a big blue chip gallery like Gagosian or something, if they're bringing in younger artists, their splits are going to be much. There might be 70-30 or something. I mean, they have to – there's so much money being made, they have to approach it, like, in a certain way. Like, why would you put out all this money? Mm-hmm. To most and people are investing like this, they're not going to give up half their profit when they're taking such a huge risk. Mm-hmm. So that's just not how most businesses run. Um, I think it's a, and you know, maybe we both should have run our businesses that way. But quite honestly, I think if I had tried that, I would have had a lot of pushback. And because, you know, artists learn about the business through each other mm-hmm. and the community they're involved with, and they all know each other. And you know, it's hard to say to someone, well, I'm giving X artist more than you because they make more money. And it's really, if you are dealing with people on such a, it's the challenge is when you're dealing with pe- people on, and it's like it, dealing with their work where it's just business and numbers, that's a real turnoff to people. So it's, mm. you know, I would say as my, my job as a gallerist was always to be super supportive, caring give good feedback, you know, they would, you know, you're like a psychologist, a a therapist and a, you know, a business partner and you know, you're filling all these like shoes. So like, I think, you know, I think the solution we're presenting is a good idea, but I don't know how easily it works in real life for most artists. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, we're putting it out there. I mean, having this conversation is like, what does everybody else think about that? You know? Yeah. I think that's, that's, this is where, where this, this discussion has to go. We need other people, maybe also invite at some point, somebody, you know, not just to, to ponder on this, uh, this idea It's just one idea. And there's still probably galleries who, I think there's a lot of galleries who say, no, no, I'm totally fine with the 50, 50. It's my risk. I mean, you're still taking the risk, even though, you know, sort of you're trying to get to, you know, fulfill the budget might, you might still end up with the 8,000 euro. It's not that the artist has to pay half doesn't have to pay. I mean, there are gallery concepts, of course, that are out there where artists have to pay for the exhibitions, but that's nothing I want to do because, you know, so that's, that's all, it's again, a completely different uh, thing. Think but, it's a totally different thing. Yeah. So, um, or renting out their spaces, but that's, yeah, well, then you, I don't know. Um, I never liked that. Um, but yeah, I mean, in order to be able to build an artist, you know, there's uh, simply there's a lot of money that needs to be spent, and that has to come from somewhere. And if it's not possible to to generate it with exhibitions, and you know, when I when I you know sort of went through these 
the times, you know, so the past years of Freedom Cowboy. And I was uh, thinking about, you know, sort of artists, taking artists like Nina Braun, for example, who I started to show in Hamburg, I think in 2004 or 2005. First show was beautiful. We sold nothing. It's just pure fun, pure investment. Um, second show, I found you know, sort of, I got, I made it, I made an acquaintance of a collector who started to be really interested in her exhibition, in her work, because her exhibition was on when he came to the gallery. And so like pure coincidence, he really liked that. He saw it on our website and he kind of liked it and he got into that and he was, you know, sort of curious. He bought a few pieces. So I think the second exhibition we did, I still didn't make money. I mean, Nina did, you know, because I sold her work, but I didn't make money on it. It was still an investment, but I, I thought there's something special, you know, I had to push that. And now I had this collector and he was like, okay, let me support the next exhibition. The third exhibition we made money with. And then we made real money with her. And we took her, you know, to art fairs and her stuff and found another, build another, a few other collectors. So it took like three exhibitions for yeah. me to make money for the first time. And that's a luxury that, you know, sort of, I, I didn't have because I had the money, you know, so it was a luxury I was willing to take because I was believing in the whole thing. And I knew that other projects that I were doing were paying for this, but it was basically my own money that I put in there. That's right. So, and how today, I think in, in these times, I think there are less galleries who are willing to take that kind of risk for artists. And, and so as an artist that is as talented as Nina is, I think it's, it's, it's very difficult today to really surface, um, and make a, make a sustainable business out of, out of it and, and become an artist past the first hype, you know? So how can it, how can it be attractive for galleries and, and artists to work together? And that's basically the question I would really like to, I mean, I have my thoughts and my opinions and one of them, well, you know, sort of, we just discussed, but yeah, it would be great if really people would, would, you know, sort of get into this discussion. Eli, well, give us some feedback and tell us what yeah. they think to help, kind of help us um, mm -hmm. figure it out. So we're asking, I'm going to say we're asking, we're asking you if you're listening. Yeah. And, and there's a couple of you listening out there. I'm talking to you right now. That's right. Talking to you in particular, sitting there, listening to this podcast right now. It's John Levine talking. Maybe you're on the bus. Yeah. Maybe you're making some art. Who knows what you're doing? Maybe you're laying in the, in your bed, listening to a podcast. What do you think? Mm -hmm. You know, what are your ideas? Like we're sitting here babbling, trying to figure it out. We could use some input. I certainly could. Um, I think, you know, this conversation, we've been talking about this pretty enlightening and at least we can talk about it. We weren't, a, we would never talk about this stuff in the past. Um, no. it would almost be like a weakness. Like, Oh, you can't admit this thing isn't working. And you make a good point. You know, I was like thinking about that. Like, I mean, I had artists that I worked with for a couple of decades and it was the same thing. It was always my rule was you had to show someone three times mm -hmm. to really build their market. Now, there was a couple artists I did shows off and I didn't do that because it was just like not happening. Um, there were artists that I did do that was with and it went really well and then it went bad. Mm -hmm. um, I had artists that always went well. I had artists that bounced because they were doing so well um and it be the i would say you know i lost money on half my shows and people were like well how does that and i'm like well other the other shows were so successful that it carried it and that's mm -hmm. how i was able to continually reinvest in artists yeah. because yeah. i really really believed in them yeah sure Some and, artists for the others i mean in the exhibition of course you know i really believed in them and you know it's funny because like there'll be artists 
you see this, like some artists I'm not working with anymore, you know, that I kind of stopped working with a bunch of years later, they had this, like, they blew up. You just never, you can't really tell, you know? Mm -hmm. And then some artists that were doing really well, you can't sell their work. So, you know, it's, it's highly unstable. Um, I think this model started to get in there, but this model with like three exhibitions, you know how much time that takes? Usually it's like six years when, until you make an exhibition every oh, year. Yeah. There has to be a lot of patience on both sides. And this oh, is yeah. something I think that's a talent that's also lost these days. I mean, you, you post something on Instagram, five, six later, you check how many likes you got. You know, and if you do a model like this, there has to be a lot of patience. And I know that also needs, you know, sort of investment and money on both sides. The artist has to be patient, you know, and not just run off for the next gallery because stick with you and maybe even have a contract and, you know, sort of like which, you know, sort of you both agree on that you're working exclusively and stuff like that. And I don't think there's many, ex I mean, except for what I said in the beginning with House and Worth and all these large, you know, Gagosian stuff like that. Of course, they have super tight contact contracts. That's like that's like trading in the NBA or, um, I don't know, you know, sort of, uh, uh f professional football players uh, changing clubs for a hundred millions, you know, right. that's the same thing. I, but I, would, I would put it out there that it's, there's far mute far far more artists making a living than any kind of, you know, sports, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it's a weird thing to compare to because like one, one player in like the NBA or the N NFL or whatever mm -hmm is more successful than most of the top tier artists in a way, in terms of like, sure. it's crazy. You know I mean? There's anyway. yeah. <laughs> well, that's a different thing. Um, yeah. But so, so, so I think that's, that's the things where I would like to direct this this discussion, and we we've, we've talked about this earlier that maybe we get a third person in uh, into the discussion. You know, maybe we should probably sit with an artist and probably sit with. Uh, but you know, I, in, I, ideally, an artist who has some experience but is not yet. Oh, I. I you know, I've been listening to some podcasts with with more seasoned artists from you know sort of that we both also know and work with, and there's you know so it's probably a thing of the age that we're doing as well. There's a lot of complaining about things are now and how much you know sort of more punk and better it was before and also. <laughs> But it's true, you know. I mean, it's it's also true. I mean, uh, of course, if you if you talk to an artist who's now on Comic Con and who was on Comic Con like twenty years ago, Comic Con is huge. You can finally make some money on it. This has developed into a different thing, you know. And making vinyl figures is not as expensive in production as it was before, and it's much easier. Maybe if you have a three D printer, you can, you know. So th this business model is also changing completely. But I'm just talking about people who just make money when they actually sell an artwork through a gallery or through any other potential you know, channel. I'm talking of channels. Um, that's also something like you started with Artsy very early because it was big in the United States. I started with Artsy, I think like five years ago as one of the first, I was the first in Hamburg who was on there. That was probably one of the few galleries in Germany were on there. Now everybody's on there. Now the marketplace is like shit again. You know, it's just like everywhere over situation, too many, you know, sort of, you know, things in the ballpark and then it gets kind of crowded, but there's something we can complain about which doesn't make any, you know, so there's no use. So we have to kind of embrace it and figure out how to deal with this. And um, yeah, so an artist would be good, but also somebody from the gallery side. And uh, I mean, I think we both know. Well, I th it would be nice. I think a lot, of, I'm just thinking like a lot of the artists that I worked with, but I think a lot of people would not feel comfortable talking about this because, mm -hmm. 
you know, they just, if there's someone out there that like, you Mm -hmm. know, it's like, I don't, because if you have a younger artist coming up, they don't really know the market. They don't have an experience with it. You want someone who's had like 10 years, at least experience or longer. And it's kind of be like, well, this is what I've seen. This is what happened. This is what I'm Mm -hmm. doing. And, And maybe somebody who knows both models. Different models. Yeah, different I mean, well, yeah. I should also mention one of the things that was always my my gallery is so different in a way because I was working with all these artists at the time who came came out of the commercial world, so they were in a lot of ways much better business people, and they sort of were able to manage their time better because that's just kind of what it was like their personality type. It's also what they were taught in school. So the gallery was just another outlet for them where I was, whereas the typical like New York gallery was at the time before everything just changed so much was the artists weren't involved like in marketing as much. They just really relied on just like the one gallery, their gallery or a couple galleries. And so I think a lot of the artists that I work with and that you also were involved with, they're a little more business savvy, commercially savvy. They have way more options. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's also an interesting uh, option for today because, you know, sort of, uh, I mean, maybe artists today are more, you know, marketing savvy or are more, you know, sort of know more about these things, not absolutely. everyone as well, but so it's also an element that changed. So an artist, you know, sort of also brings probably a big followership to the gallery is that that's also an argument maybe for a gallery to show an artist rather than, you know, rather than an artist that has 50,000 followers or an artist that has Instead of I was 500. So, yeah. So, you know, what happened with that? And this is always, this kind of aggravated me. And this is something like, what would happen is you build an artist. They'd mm-hmm. start from nowhere. You'd help promote and market them. They'd have their own Instagram, their own Facebook. So they got to retain that. Mm-hmm. Whereas you paid for it. They got to keep it. They mm-hmm. got collectors. The collector started to contact them directly. And then they were like, well, those are mine. Mm-hmm. Those are my followers now. It's like, you know what? It's like they're mine. And I, you know, like I spent all this money to help you build that and I don't share in that. So that's kind of why contracts and all that stuff is important. And that's where things start to get, or someone will say, well, I'm a lot of times, you know, yeah, an artist brings a lot to the table. Mm -hmm. They're like, well, I have all these followers and yeah, that's true. And sometimes you do really well. And then there's also the times where they have all these followers and they bring to the table and nobody buys anything. So it's like really, you know, they get, yeah, basically what I'm saying is that, you know, so there's artists bring probably different packages to the gallery now as well as they, they did before. And um, yeah, so maybe we should look for somebody to join us in, in these talks or maybe two people to join us in these talks. It's for me, of course, I can always say I have two hats on with being an artist myself and running a gallery, but that is a completely different uh, topic. It does not make it easier for me as an artist to have a gallery and it doesn't make it easier for me as a gallerist to understand how artists tick. So it's probably just good knowledge base for me. <laughs> but um, it's, it's interesting to talk about. So yeah. I th- have we... We've covered this topic enough for today. Yeah, I think so. I think we should move into the second part and okay. share some stories or one story. I'm going to say one more again. Give us some feedback. You know, if you're listening to these podcasts, give us some feedback. Mm-hmm. It helps us like have a conversation, helps us move forward uh, as we try to figure out solutions. Yeah. Or at some point, if there's nothing's happening, then we just leave it. 
<laughs> just like that was it. We tried. Yeah, Sorry. we tried. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I mean, as a, you know, one last thing, maybe I think it's a th topic that many people think about, and every there's probably a lot of people also who are feeling that they're a little bit alone out there and trying, you know, sort of to find solution. I had a podcast, my last podcast, with uh, the artist Paul, Schra Paul Schrader from Hamburg, who has a diff completely different business model. He sells his art alone, and I find it really fascinating how he does that. Um, and, but that's also a, a model that is not applicable to anybody else. You know, it's pretty unique how he does that. And it probably only works for him and maybe a few other people who have the same experience. It, well, and I, but it seems like, and, and of course I know a lot of artists doing that and, you know, a lot of artists just representing themselves, but there's always this sort of like peak that happens. So mm -hmm. like, it'll be working now, but maybe it doesn't work later for a variety of reasons. That's another conversation, mm -hmm. right. but, um, Story time. Story okay. time. With Story time. And York. Do we need a jingle for this? Sure. Maybe why somebody, not? Maybe somebody you know, can produce one for us. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, I've been actually asked for this by a good friend of mine who's coming to our exhibitions for, I feel, forever. And he is... Um, He's always listening to our podcast. Uh, he's a huge fan of uh, Those Green and uh, and yeah, well, basically a lot of the artists that have, you know, sort of that you know, sort of came, grew up with Jonathan Levine Gallery. And he says, you know, this is something I'd really like to hear at some point. You know, like anecdotes, stories. So is that we're going to talk about. Yeah, we can. You know, is, is there is there something you want to? I don't know. Is there an interesting story you want to share? I mean, I. Uh well, I got to say, you know, as much as I've complained and I love to complain, I'm a typical like Jewish, Italian, Northeasterner. It's my personality. Mm -hmm. We complain. That's what we do. Oh, great. Do you even have an excuse? I don't even have an excuse. Um, we whine. <laughs> uh, and so, but I was really lucky. I had, um, I had 20 years of like an exceptionally amazing career that was better than most. And I had one amazing exhibition after another. And I had so many amazing experiences. It could be, gosh, I'll just name some off the top of my head. A couple of shows I did with Shepard Ferry, the one we did in Dumbo, the d dual one, or the one we did when we did like this music festival mm -hmm. slash uh, Altamar's parties. You know, I can just talk about, you know, doing like the Wooster Collective 10-year anniversary or Juxtapose 20th anniversary exhibition or just like long-term relationships I've had, like, mm -hmm. or me and Gary Baseman traveling to like Brazil together a couple times, me and Adam Wild Cabbage traveling to England and Brazil and multiple places. Um, our community was really tight and we traveled a lot and we did things together and we did lots of cool projects. So, I mean, you talked about those green. I remember, um, I don't remember which exhibition it was with him. I think I did six exhibitions with him. Mm -hmm. But I remember one exhibition where, you know, we had a show. And so some people may or may know, not know this, but but uh, Doz was a member of the New York City break. I'm sorry, Rocksteady Crew. Don't want to get mm -hmm. those mixed up. He's part of Rocksteady Crew, which was like the most iconic breakdancing crew in the world. Like, yes. Rocksteady Crew. Like, they, yeah. they invented stuff. They invented shit. Yeah. Not that there was, That's it. Yeah. What's that? That's yeah. it. Yeah. You know, and they were like movies and blah, blah, blah. And he was actually like in the, he was in a bunch of movies. He was in like Beat Street. And this is a movie I saw when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. when I, 
I did yeah. little did I know I would like meet this guy and work with this guy. Um, and he was also in the very beginning of the beginning of flash dance. Actually, there's kids break dancing <laughs> in the very beginning, but I mean, he was like, he traveled all over the world with like crazy legs and uh, Ken Swift and I surprising. I can't even remember these names. And they were like the iconic breakdancing crew. Now I was a B-boy when I was a um, teenager with B-boy is a breakdancer. Mm-hmm. So I was like, holy shit, it's fucking Doe's Green. So like, you know, I get to know him over the years. We partied. I partied with all the artists I work with. At some sure. point in time, if they were partiers, we partied a lot. In New York City, We, our friends owned bars. We had the craziest, craziest. I could talk about this bar lit forever. Mm-hmm. And did we ever hang at lit? Oh, Probably. I could yeah. talk about that bar forever. I'm like, yeah. I got a lot of stories. Yeah. Um, but so it's my art open. It's this art opening with those. And at the end of the night, Rocksteady crew shows up and they break dance. And these dudes are like, at this point, they're like in their mid to late forties, mm-hmm. mid forties at least. And they're break dancing on concrete floors after the show closes. We made a little video on it. So somewhere floating around on YouTube. I mean, how, how cool is that? Yeah. Who does that happen for? Like this, like thing that I grew up with as a kid, mm-hmm. that was this huge influence on me. These guys are like break dancing. And then, you know, we had an after party and we all got completely shit faced. And anyway, it was, that, that was always the end of the, the, the night, the constant, mm-hmm. we had these epic parties that were, we did for, you know, decades in New York city. It was crazy. So that was, that was a one really, I had a lot of crazy experiences like that. Um, you know, one of the other kind of, I hear your phone in the background. Yeah, me too. But uh, You know, just a, another one I could think of off time. I mean, like, again, I could talk about this stuff forever. Um, is I just remember like when we did. Um, but when Tristan did those green, you know, sort of leave the uh, Rocksteady crew to become an artist or was that? I, yeah, I think when he was like, he was doing that up till he was in his late teens. And then mm-hmm. he kind of was like, I'm done. And he started to really focus on painting. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, he moved to San Francisco. He bounces around a lot. I think he's he was in Brazil. I don't know if he's still in Brazil right now. San Francisco. Then he came back to the East Coast. And then he lived. He was living forever out like I don't know in Northern California or Nevada mm-hmm. or something on a farm. Now then, last I spoke to him via like text messaging or like on Instagram, he was in Brazil and he just had a solo show at uh, gosh, I can't think of the name of their gallery. He just had a show in New York. Um, so okay. he's a bit of a nomad, but you know, he grew up in, in New York city. He's a New York city dude. Mm-hmm. He grew up in like North of like Harlem. Can't think of the name of the neighborhood. Um, but yeah, man, he's old school. He's a most old, one of the most old school, like real New Yorkers that I work with. Most of the artists I work with were not from New York. They were traveling mm-hmm. from all over the world. So there's experience I had when I did this big show with these, all these Brazilian artists who I did a show with like eight or 10 Brazilian artists. They'd never sure. been. Did you work with Herbert Bagliona? No, I never worked with Herbert. No. I never worked with Herbert Bagliona. I he just was, worked. He was huge too. I mean, I've not heard of him, but he's probably so big, but I, you know. Yeah, no, I never worked with Herbert. I worked for, with a lot of other artists. So oh. um, I never worked with those Jamios. Those Jamios by that time was already like, they had yeah. taken off. They were already at Jeffrey Deitch. Okay. I showed showed with Vice. I showed Vice who came up with yeah. with those guys. Um, mm-hmm. I showed a lot of artists that came up with those guys that were like Speto and yeah. 
Zazal, you know, and so like that kind of like came up with them in that, that old Brazilian scene that, um, Mm -hmm. where those guys were just like doing Pichu sound, which is the the word they use for graffiti in, uh, Brazil. And they had this whole other culture there. That's a, that's a, a, a very interesting thing because I've also worked with, with both artists with, with Speto in 2005 and then, you know, sort of later with, um, I met Cezau here in Hamburg, but that was basically, you know, we already worked with him by then. But uh, it's it's very, it was very, always very interesting to see when, you know, people from, from different countries, countries and other cultures, how they treated the whole Ermark graffiti movement. I mean, Speto was a star in his country where he in Germany people were still trying to get rid of those people to paint on walls you know that he was completely in a different way appreciated and um I remember when I met him the first time on a project in in Copenhagen where he was invited um that was actually an art project that was financed by Volkswagen they wanted to introduce a car called the Fox and uh, together with a few other people and 21 artists we rebuilt a hotel in Copenhagen and Speto was invited not because I think many people knew what he was doing but because he was from Brazil and then Speto comes and I I didn't know him before that project, and uh, then we spent a lot of time together. And uh, and I've and he was starting to show me what he's doing in Brazil, and you know, so kind of what kind of people he is surrounding himself with, and kind of shows he's doing. And it looked like so much more vivid and and closer to life than a lot of the stuff that I've been you know working with here in Europe. You know, so I, I always find it found it very interesting to work with people from from different cultures and different countries and um, totally different approach. So, yeah, you know, I'd say that that was one of the things that, I mean, the world's changed a lot and it flattened more. Um, but at that mm-hmm. time, what's well, like you and I were good friends, you know, mm-hmm. like 15 years ago, it's like, I wouldn't know. I was going to know some guy named York, some German guy. Mm-hmm. I didn't know I was going to travel all over the world and like, and all my traveling was artist based. So I was able to, I, most of the artists I was showing from, you know, half the artists I worked with were like from other countries. So it was a way for me yep to experience that culture. So, you know, I got to go to Brazil a lot. I got to go to Japan. I got to go to all over Europe multiple times. I worked, Mm -hmm. I think I went to the two countries I've been to the most are Germany Mm -hmm. and Italy. Now I have no connection with Germany. I'm not like German of German, you know, it's not my heritage. Not Uh, like 2.5% German in you. Nope. I don't think I have (laughs) German in me. Maybe. No, I don't think so. No, (laughs) you don't know. (laughs) No, I do. I think I'm, I'm half Ashkenazi. I'm roughly, 35% 35% Italian, 5% like Southern Europe and like 10% like North African, right. like Arab, whatever. Um, typical Italian, that part. Um, so, but, uh, you know, it was, it, it allowed me to experience all that. And wherever you go, whatever country you go to was always completely different. You know, I can remember my travels to visit you in Hamburg and all the time I spent in Berlin and just, um, you know, traveling all over Italy and working with gallerists and artists there and England and Spain, um, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. And like everywhere you go, it was, it was cool. You know, I mean, even when I would go to LA, mm-hmm. it's always nice to go somewhere different and, uh, get a different person's perspective. So, but that's, 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 I think is a, is the, is the great advantage of the, of the, of the job that we've, you know, sort of, we decided to, to, to pursue many years ago is that, um, 
I worked with Helium Kawa basically, you know, I think in year two, I started to invite artists from other countries. Uh, that was also something that I was missing in Hamburg, you know, more or less that. I mean, not just, you know, maybe there were some artists that were shown, but they weren't there. And for me, it was very important to get them over and uh, and see them and meet them. And then when we started to go on the, on the fairs, uh, that was... I mean, I've spent some time in the United States, but it was the first time I went to Miami, for example. What a weird city. You know? <laughs> yes. What a weird fucking city. And, and, then, also, and, and you know, the privilege that I had when I went the first time to Miami, that was really, really beautiful. I've worked with friends with you. On, I met them in 2005 on that project in Copenhagen as well. I did uh, a show with them in Hamburg when they were releasing their book and they really wanted to come, but the... The, the, the Gestalten Verlag had like terrible management on top, you know, and they just didn't want them to do anything else but their shit. So Turi, uh, Sam and I, we decided we do a show in Hamburg without them and we make the first official Friends With You bootleg show. So like I invited artists and good artists, you know, like well-known artists, respected artists who I knew would like the work of Friends With You. And we produced an exhibition, I think with 12, 13 artists that was a friends with your show where we bootleg their work and not just copy their works, but integrate their styles and their world into what we did. It was a beautiful show. And at the finissage, Sam and Turi came over to Hamburg and basically provided some artworks in the show and they were there and sent their books. And it was just beautiful. They were there for a few days and lived there more or less um, to, you know, beautiful people. And the first year we went to Miami in 2005 or six, Turi helped us. Um, with the accommodation because his father, Arturo Sandoval II, uh, is, a, is a very famous jazz musician uh, from Miami, from Cuba, actually. Uh, he played the Gillespie band. And uh, yeah, so, and he has his own jazz club um, in, I think it's a day, the Deauville Hotel on the beach. And he also has a floor in that hotel. And Lutz, my assistant at the time, and I, we had rooms in that hotel beautiful hotel we've never been able to afford an expensive hotel like that afterwards in miami well you know traveling with one or two artists and mm -hmm. you know the office is mm -hmm. always very expensive so you take a hotel that's in a nice area probably close to the beach but doesn't cost that much um which is also relative in miami during fair times it doesn't cost so much but that was a beautiful year hanging out with sam and Turi and in that year, we went to visit Sam at home, and Sam had this loose drawing group. Like they they hung out, you know, sort of in the evening, and uh, and uh, did some weed and you know lots of beers and other alcohol, and started to draw on the table. And I met this one guy who wasn't that famous at that point, uh, but really nice character, and we got along really well. His name was David Cho, um, yeah. <laughs> and, and David. And Turi made a collaboration, two collaboration pieces on that evening. They just worked together, made watercolors, beautiful. I still got one of those. Um, and then Sam asked me basically to take all the drawings that they did that evening, take them to Germany and sell them because they didn't have really a market for those in the United States. They were friends with you and they made nice projects. Right. They didn't have a market for exhibitions and stuff like that. And so just imagine that, you know, sort of you hang out with these people who eventually become I mean, David Cho was known, but not as known by that time, you know, sort of as he was years after. And it's of not, course. you know, things like that. And hanging out with of these course. people and doing normal, normal things, basically parties, you know, drinking. I remember that my assistant at that time in Miami, he wanted 
to walk because I think Sam lived close to an area where you should not walk around being too white. And Lutz, my assistant, he's very, very white um, and skinny and, <laughs> and he wanted to walk and Sam Mature said, you better not walk in that neighborhood here. We just take the cars you know, so, and drive you safely out of here. You might, you might not, you know, sort of get out at the other end. <laughs> well, at least not the way you look like right now, you know, so that's, that's, you know, so there were so many stories, tiny stories and anecdotes that, you know, sort of that, that made this, this journey worthwhile. Although I must admit, of course, at that time, I still made money, but okay, that's for another uh, well, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, you make, you remind me about like when I was younger and how exciting this was all for me. And I don't think it's because I'm older that I don't, I, it's just, these sort of things don't really happen anymore. I mean, we were back then, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't as, you know, ultimately the market wasn't oversaturated. So people weren't as jaded mm -hmm. and you'd get so excited about doing something cool and unique and you'd discover some artists and you'd have this community with them and you'd have this energy and you'd be totally in love with their work. And then you could go and present it and people be like, that was so cool. I've never seen anything like this before. I'm happy to, you know, buy some work and blah, blah, blah. And so that was so great. And that was great that we got to have those experiences. I don't know if that's something that's necessarily we're, we're able to recreate because everybody's just no. on Instagram. They're like not really interested in mm -hmm interacting and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, we were, we weren't sharing those stories then we were just living them too. That was also nice. I mean, just like think about the, the scenario and it, David wasn't the only artist in there. They had the, they made their uh, a parade on the beach uh, that, that year with these uh, helium balloons. Oh yeah. Know, that was, oh, yeah that one? I remember that. Yeah. And I remember Sam and Tura being super proud because that photo actually made it onto the New York Times on the cover as the photo for Art Basel Miami, you know, because it was impressive. They were walking I, on the beach, you know. I think that uh, that David, I remember that David and I think David like had he was someone was driving him around. He was playing his drums mm -hmm. on, <laughs> on the beach, you know, just banging away. It was pretty hilarious. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it was actually kind of transgressive at the time. And mm -hmm. it was just like, this, these guys are nuts, you know? <laughs> and I don't know that, you know, people you could do that now and anybody really cares, but it was, it was new and fresh. And like, we were reinventing Miami, mm -hmm. what it was. It was the art fairs were new. There weren't as many and everyone was coming in there and bringing lots of creativity and collectors were excited and they were writing about it and people were buying work. And it wasn't just all an Instagram photo, mm -hmm. which I find you know, it's just totally impersonal. It's not the same thing, you know? Um, I mean, now if, you know, my, everyone goes to Miami, it's art tourism. Um, mm -hmm. Not to really buy is it's just to go be part of this giant, like whenever anyone goes, I'm like, you're going to have a blast. Like me, I've gone too many times. I'm like, uh, I love Miami. Like you mm -hmm. said, it's weird. I love, I don't love South beach. I love mainland Miami yeah. because it's so ethnically diverse. And it's like, there's, there's no, you never see so many murals in your life. You know I mean? It didn't used to be like that, but it's like almost central and South America. It's a huge Cuban and Brazilian population. You can get great Cuban food, Peruvian food, Haitian food. It's so cool. It's so weird. So cool. And I love sun and palm trees, like the beach. Yeah. You know, it's, so it's, it's a weird, I like weird, cool like that. And now it's very creative. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, when we used to go, it was like, it was new and we like recreated. Now it's like, I say, you go there, it's like you're on, a, you're on acid and you're 
and you're a part of this giant art rave. That's what I always just because there's like 50, 60, 70,000 people that show up yeah. and it's like nonstop art events. Like yeah. you don't have to walk into an art fair. There's all this stuff just happening for free mm-hmm. everywhere. It's like a giant street fair that takes place in mainland Miami and South Beach. It's insane. Mm-hmm. Totally insane. I know. But I mean, I don't know because I haven't been there for 10 years, but I'm, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily feel the need to go there, you know, so <laughs> yeah. now, but, well, it, but, it's, both, but it's but. true. It's like it had, it was, I, I really like Miami, but it also still had some kind of s- small town America. It's a large town, of course, but as you were driving around, there's not, there was not like so much activity all the time, you know? So even from the hotels that we had, you could walk to the next burger place and you always find a place. And, you know, it wasn't, people weren't exaggerating on the money they were taking, you know? Um, and, um, I remember Boris the first year I took him, that was in 2007, the new, the first iPhone came out and it wasn't available in Europe. And he went to, I think Miami already had an Apple store. First thing he did, we, we dropped our bags in the hotel And he went to the Apple store and <laughs> brought himself an iPhone. And I think this, apart from building a huge cardboard installation inside Scope in the entrance area, we were like the, the gallery on Scope at that time. You know, I remember. Was, that was huge. But apart from all, because he's got this insanely great work uh, ethic, uh, ethics, Boris, he is working, working, working. But all the time, spare time he had, he was trying to jailbreak the fucking iPhone so he could start using it as a phone. And of course he managed because he's just so, I mean, he's so, so diligent. He's just so, you know, he's just getting into it. And I remember that was the main topic of Boris. I'm going to get the new iPhone. I'm going to jailbreak it. I'm the first one with an iPhone in Barcelona probably. And he was probably, probably in 2007. He was. Right, right. <laughs> All right, my friend. Yeah. yeah. You want to you wanna add something, Miami stories? So shall we just, you know, sort of, I think I like the second part. I think yeah, maybe, both- we, maybe we should start telling stories. Yeah. That's, that's easy enough. Yeah. My stories usually are like, they're a little bit maybe too rated R, though. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I mean, there's, there's the option iTunes to say it's rated R, you know. So Art, like, artists don't want, language. To, they don't want to talk about what the, all the bad stuff that we did <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> and all the fun we had um, in a variety of places. Uh, yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's something to think about. Yep. So, all right. Well, all right, uh, my friend. so we hope we get some feedback. Um, if not, we just tell stories and we're going to change the gallery market model later or never, or I don't know, but we keep you posted on what Jonathan Levine projects and Helium Cowher are doing. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I've got an yeah. online show opening with uh, an artist named Mark Dukes. He does okay. really cool collage and painting work and he actually, yeah. he's American, but he lives in Thailand of all places. Okay. So... And his work is very racially charged. Like he's dealing with, you know, racial issues. So uh, he's an African-American artist. So it, it uh, we'll see if people, uh, if it's, it if, yeah, if people get a, if it's, it's controversial right. anyway. Okay. Uh, I'll have to say one thing. I know. Choose. That was all right, wasn't it? Us being so positive about our profession and the great experiences that come along with it. I have to stop saying sort of, though. I'm using that a lot. Well, too much. 
I'm just so glad that the technology did not abandon us today and we managed to talk through without being cut off. That would have been a shame, really. All right, I'll stop this recording and hope everything worked today. Okay. If not, if not, I'm just, I don't know, I think I have to, we have to cancel our friendship then. Oh, all right, glad that doesn't have to happen now. Anyway, have a nice day, wherever you are, and after playing a lot of the aggressive music by Jonathan's band Cyclone Static at the end of our past off-the-record episodes, I just thought to grab the guitar now and play a much softer tune as our conversation wasn't that heated today. Talk soon. sing in tongues of silver I heard her cry on a summer storm I loved her but she did not know it so I don't think about her anymore now she's gone and I can't believe I don't think about her anymore Three and four were seven only Where would that leave one and two? If love can be and still be lonely Where does that leave me and you? Time there was and time there will be Where does that leave me and you? If I had a buckskin stallion I'd tame him down and ride away If I had a flying schooner I'd sail into the light of day I had your love forever Sail into the light of day Pretty songs and pretty places Places that I've never seen Pretty songs and pretty faces Tell me what they're after me Some look like they'll cry forever Tell me what they're left to me If I had a buckskin stallion I'd tame him down and ride away If I had a golden galleon I'd sail into the light of day If I had your love forever, I'd sail into the light of day. If I had your love forever, I'd sail into the light of day.